the way someone becomes a resilient, capable human being is that they have the ability or an underlying set of skills that allows them to learn from difficulty. So when they go and do hard things, as they go through that process, they're able to adjust and learn on the fly and then become more capable. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by John Pope. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of what's new, a little preview into what is coming up in my week, and then finish off with a deep thought from your good friend, MR. So, What's new? Not a ton. A little bit of coaching last week. Definitely enjoying where I'm at with that, enjoying the process. Got a few people that are wrapping up kind of their off-season, if that's, if you can call this an off-season, kind of a transition period before they head back. Taya's heading back overseas. Cass just left to go back to school. Ashley just went back to school. So trying to get those people where they belong. I'm going to have Megs here for a couple months. I got a new race car driver, Jacob who I've been working with. He's going to be here for probably at least three months. So got a nice little crew there. Excited about that. Had a really big meeting last week. It was myself and Bill and our business advisor, Pat Rigsby. And man, we really just took a deep dive into what we want iFast to look like going forward, how we want to grow and develop iFastU going forward. And I think these meetings are important, right? Because sometimes you get caught up in the mundane grind, just the day-to-day, and you're just trying to, you know, get a new client or get somebody new to sign up or trying to, you know, just kind of keep plugging along. And I think, you know, it's really helpful sometimes to have these bigger meetings where you have to pause, you have to reflect, you have to take the time to maybe either create or recreate your vision for what you want your business to look like. So really excited about that, came out of that meeting very energized and just really excited for 2021 and some of the things that I think we're going to put into place here in the next three, six, nine months. Kiddo Sports, humming along. Kendall is in her second round of soccer, really loving the indoor piece. And as I mentioned last week, she made it her goal this year to improve at soccer. So we've been going in the gym two or three days a week, and it's crazy. I mean, just the fact that she's getting on the ball a little bit more, it's not even formal practices. Either her and I will go in and knock the ball around, or while I'm working out, she'll just sit there and kick the ball against the wall. It's been really cool to watch her development over the last couple of weeks. So hope she continues that. Cade is still in basketball. He also has signed up for indoor. That man is, he's just wired. He's like me. He's got, I got a lot of juice. So it just needs He needs to find ways to move his body consistently. So he had his first practice yesterday and, you know, he can be a little bit hit or miss sometimes with the team sports, but he came out of there, big smile on his face. I said, how did you enjoy it, bud? He said, man, I really liked it. He said, I really think I'm going to enjoy this. So very excited to have that kind of positivity and hopefully he really does enjoy it. And then one other thing that I'm going to start adding in, Kendall and I have this it's not definitely not a bet, <laughs> not teaching her to bet, but we just kind of are working collaboratively to see how much we can read this year. And that girl, I mean, she just crushes books. 
but I'm making it a goal. I don't know if I'm going to read a book every week, but I just want to read really consistently over the course of this year. Not that I haven't in the past, but I want to get in 30, 45, 60 minutes every night because I sleep better. I feel better about myself. I feel like I'm constantly like putting good stuff in my brain. So the book that I read last week was by my boy, 50 Cent. I mean, it's not really my boy, but do enjoy his music, do enjoy his mindset. So my good friend and trainee, Sandy San Miguel, gifted me Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter by 50 Cent. And there's actually another book that he co-authored with Robert Greene. I think it was like the 51st something. I don't remember the name of it now, and I can't see it. I don't know. The 50th Law maybe is the title of it. But regardless, it was good. I actually like this a little bit better. I'm a huge Robert Greene fan, but I just enjoyed this being written in his own words. So definitely a good book. Definitely enjoyed it. And uh, didn't even bother me that she uh, happened to gift me a pair of reading glasses with it because it's made my reading a lot more enjoyable here lately. Found myself reading with one eye when my, <laughs> my eyes were tired at the end of the night. So that's what's new coming up this week. Big news. Kiddos are supposedly going back to school. Like as of tomorrow, I'm going to have six hours, four days a week. They're not going to go back on Fridays, but four days a week, I might have six hours to actually get real things done and make big progress. Now, with that being said, I don't expect this to last very long. I'm assuming something is going to happen or they're going to have to quarantine or they're going to shut the school down again. So I'm basically giving myself a four week sprint, 30 days and see how much stuff I can get done. So that's exciting that they're going back to school. And, you know, over the the next 30 days, my job is to first and foremost, create all of the lists. So I fast, I fast you complete coach, like all the things that I want to get done and my vision for all of those, and then execute as much as I possibly can in the next 30 days with the intention and expectation that they're going to get sent back home. And if they don't, then, hey, good for me that I'm going to have time to to make other moves. So that's kind of what's going on. And then before I let you go, I want to give you two thoughts with regards to just dominating 2021 and, and how to get the most out of your year from a continuing education perspective. Because this is something I get asked on a very regular basis. It may not be daily, but it's definitely weekly. People are confused about Con Ed. They have gotten a lot of conflicting information. So I want to make this as simple as possible. And I want to give you two keys to having more success with your continuing education. And the first piece, you may not like it, but I think you're going to know I'm right. The first thing you have to do is you have to invest some money. And this is hard these days, right? Because we have this allure with social media, with blogs. You know, it's very easy to go and read an article or read a blog or watch a video. And I'm not saying those are bad items, but it's really hard to get all of the pieces laid out for you. And this is something where, you know, a lot of people will try and follow Bill's stuff. And they're like, oh, you know, I I watched this video and this video and they can't put the pieces together. Well, It's not really how it's supposed to work. Like part of the only reason I understand this stuff is because I'm around him all the time. I took the time and took like three days out of a weekend to go to the intensive where he kind of put all these pieces together for me. So, you know, you got to invest some money in this and you need to get people's more fully fleshed out thought processes versus their little sound bites. 
So I go back to when I lived in Fort Wayne and the great thing about Fort Wayne was I didn't have a lot to do other than train, work and do continuing education stuff. So one of the books that I picked up very early in my career just said, you have to invest 10% of your income in Con Ed. Now, keep in mind, I had like no extra money. I was fresh out of school. I would been basically unemployed for six months from the time I graduated. So that like grace period that you have, no, there was no grace period in student loans. They were hitting, had a car payment, had a rent payment, like wanted to wife my lady up. So there were expenses to be had. And look, I made it work. I just said, I'm going to do this. And so I invested 10% of my money in VHS tapes. I just have VHS tapes, LOL, in my script here. But yeah, I mean, VHS tapes. I remember watching Ian King static stretching videos or the old West Side videos. I mean, I was just an absolute sponge. Stuff that I wasn't even allowed to do, right? Like I was watching VHS tapes about myofascial release and, and Guy Voyer doing all these crazy manipulations and stuff to the spine. Like I just wanted to learn. Okay. I went to seminars. I went to workshops. So there's no way around this, right? Like you can maybe do it for a while and you can try and piece things together. But if you want to get somebody's entire program, if you want to have a really good idea as to how they do things, and it could be my stuff, it could be Bill's stuff, it could be Joel Jameson, Lee Taft, Precision Nutrition. If you want to learn, you can read some blogs and you can watch some Instagram videos, but if you really want to get an in-depth view as to how things work, you got to invest. So that's number one. The second piece is you got to be willing to invest your time. And it's weird because we all have the same 24 hours in the day, but the struggle we're fighting with now is everyone everywhere is vying and fighting for our attention. And if you're on social media, you know this is the case, right? Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, they're all vying for our attention. That's why they're, you know, showing us ads that we think we like. They're trying to keep us engaged and on the site for longer and longer periods of time. So when a lot of people and these like self-help con ed gurus, they'll say, oh, you got to spend 90 minutes every day. You got to spend 60 minutes every day. Like, that's great. Like, that's great. But if you're spending zero time, 60 minutes seems like an eternity. So instead of trying to get 90 minutes or 60 minutes, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. And if you've ever read this guy, Leo Babuta, I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce his last name, but he's like a minimalist in so many ways in his life. And his approach to meditating was that, hey, don't start with 20 minutes. Start with one minute, right? Think about that. Everybody can meditate for one minute. So what you're trying to do is decrease or lower that that threshold, lower that resistance. So you make it so easy, like that's ridiculous. Of course I can take one minute. So here's what I want you to do. If you want to get serious about your con ed this year, start with five minutes. And hey, if it's a YouTube video, that's fine. If it's five minutes in a podcast when you're commuting to work or you're walking your dog or you just have a short break in between clients, take five minutes out of your day to start educating yourself. I know it sounds incredibly simple, incredibly easy, but what you find is it generates this momentum. That momentum spurs you on. You're like, oh, that's cool. Then you take that information, you use it. Maybe you get a little success. Now you're like, oh, well, hey, that worked. I want to learn some more about that. So now it just builds this momentum and you want to learn more. You want to spend more time. 
So don't think, oh my gosh, if I can't get 60 minutes in, it doesn't work. No, start with five minutes and then start trying to do that every single day. Don't break the chain. And I think if you can do those two things this year, if you can invest some of your hard-earned money, and I get it, it's hard-earned, but if you can invest 5 to 10% of your income into your continuing education, and you can start working on educating yourself for as little as five minutes per day with a goal of working up to, sure, 30 to 60 minutes every day, man, you are going to absolutely crush this year. And you know, if you're a trainer, a coach, a rehab professional, this absolutely applies, but this stuff applies across the board, my friend. If you are investing in your education, both in time and in money, I have no doubt 2021 is going to be your best year ever. Okay, I have rambled far long enough. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, John Pope. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill, and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple. Restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As, where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you'll be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. John Pope is a strength and conditioning coach based out of Denver, Colorado, with over 10 years of coaching experience and a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science. Along with Craig Weller, He co-founded Ethos Colorado Training Center in 2010, where he is the lead coach and oversees operations. John also works with Precision Nutrition as a coach where he develops coaching strategies that are used with thousands of clients every year. In this show, John and I cover a ton of ground on the mental side of training. We start by defining resilience and talk about how it can be built into training. Next, we talk about stress physiology and how perception changes how a client experiences a workout. And last but not least, we talk about stories and beliefs and how they can either work for or against us both in the gym as well as in life. The topics we cover in this show are universally applicable, whether you're coaching clients or athletes, so I really hope you enjoy it. But enough for me, let's do this. John, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, well, first off, thanks for inviting me on. I'm excited to be here. So my name is Jonathan Pope. I am the owners of a strength and conditioning facility in Denver called Ethos Colorado. I've owned that for just across the 10-year mark this last year. Congrats. Thank you. I am the co-author of a recent book called Building the Elite that is about preparing individuals for special operations selection programs. And the third thing that I do quite a bit is I also work for Precision Nutrition. I've been a coach and writer there for the past seven years. So with that kind of diverse background, that means that I work with everyone from gym population with Precision Nutrition and my gym to special ops guys with building the elite. And so I have this very broad and very expansive background working with a variety of populations on everything from, you know, habit-based nutrition coaching, trying to help people do just the absolute fundamentals and working with, you know, people who have never exercised in their life to people whose career is on the line on a day-to-day basis based on the training advice that I'm giving them. I love it, man. That's cool. So tell me what originally led you to the world of physical preparation? Like what's your backstory there? Yeah. So I grew up like most kids or athletic kids, you know, playing a lot of sports growing up. And eventually I settled on baseball as being the thing, you know, that I wanted to do was the sport I was the best at. I loved it. And, you know, unfortunately that led to me playing an insane amount of games at an early age. You know, by the time I was 12, I was playing like 150 games a year, traveling <laughs> over the U.S. And so as happens, you know, I, and I was always a really hard worker. Like I loved it. Like I just absolutely loved the sport and that never felt like that was imposed upon me. Like I wanted to do that. And so that being the case, I was, you know, in wanting to go and play in college. And so as a high school athlete, I was like a six foot, 150 pound noodle uh, that could throw a ball 90 miles an hour, but I was only six foot and I was right-handed, which for a baseball player is is small, especially a pitcher. And so I was told that I needed to be bigger and to be able to throw harder if I wanted to play at a division one level, even if I was currently, you know, being very successful at the level that I was currently at. So, you know, I started getting into weightlifting and I actually had this freak injury where I ruptured my spleen, my sophomore year of high school. And I didn't actually have to have it removed, but I spent the whole summer laying, sitting at home. Mm. And so I would sleep 16 hours a day and go to the gym twice a day and eat an incredible amount of food and just lift weights. And then, so that kind of got me into this obsession with the gym and lifting weights and thinking that that was going to be, you know, kind of my savior and becoming big and more strong and powerful. And I was going to throw the ball, you know, 95 miles an hour. And I was going to play division one baseball. And unfortunately that's not really how it worked out. You know, I ended up playing in college, but by the time I got there, I already had one surgery. And, you know, after a year, my body was just shot. I mean, I remember my freshman year, it was to the point where I'd have to show up for practice two hours early. So I could work with the ATs and the PTs doing this like insane regiment to try to fix all the things that were wrong with me. And then I'd go to my, you know, three hour practice and then I'd come back and then I'd do more recovery work. And then on the off days when we didn't have practice or we had a shorter practice, I'd work with the strength and conditioning coach and I'd be doing extra stuff there. And, you know, I was just like super motivated to, to want to be the best that I could. And the more that I did, the, the worse I felt and the worse mm-hmm. things went. And it just kind of led to this spiral. And so at the end of all that, after five surgeries later, I was convinced that there had to be a better way. And that while all the people I worked with were, you know, I think very well-meaning, they all really wanted to help me, that there was something missing there. And because I was doing the work, I was doing everything everybody told me. 
and it wasn't working. And so I kind of became obsessed with strength and conditioning and physical therapy and movement and all these different areas and wanting to figure out what that way was so that A, I could kind of fix myself and B, I didn't want other people to go through that process themselves. And so it kind of sent me on my trajectory that got to me to where I am today. I love it. Now just fill in those gaps for us. So from kind of broken down collegiate athlete to all the cool stuff you're doing today, talk to us a little bit about your career path. Yeah. So as I said, I kind of went the traditional route. I went to college and then during college, I assumed that I would have to go on and get, you know, a high level degree. I'd have to go to med school or become a physical therapist or something of that nature. So I did pre-med as my undergrad, but I also did nutrition and exercise physiology. So I basically had three degrees. And then during that time, I also did internships. Like I said, I was, I was like obsessed. I was extremely driven to like, to become better. And, and so I went down that field and then Eventually, my junior year of college, into my junior year, beginning of my senior year, I met a PhD student named Kimi Sato, who was doing his PhD in biomechanics. And he had previously been a strength coach before coming back to get his PhD. And he really kind of opened a lot of doors for me. So he was doing his research in, P- in biomechanics, but he would, when he was working with athletes, he would use strength and conditioning principles. He would use physical therapy principles. We'd look at nutrition. We'd look at exercise physiology. And he would just grab pieces from all over the spectrum. And he was like well-known and extremely effective at helping people who other people couldn't help. So he'd take these athletes that were not having success in the model of seeing the MD or going to the athletic training department. And he'd work with these guys and figure out what the underlying like root cause problem was and address it and then build these people back up. And it really opened my eyes that I didn't need necessarily to go to med school or to go become a PT to become very, very effective. And honestly, kind of being this jack of all trades and having this really diverse tool set would help you become a much more effective coach. So after college, I graduated, I just ran with that. And, you know, I started at like a kind of like a local gym that was like a 24 hour fitness and lasted about three months because I was doing my own thing. And so I just started my own business and figured like, Hey, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And if it doesn't work out, I can just go back to school. You know, like I had good enough grades and everything like grad school wasn't going to be a problem and it worked out, you know, and I just kept seeking out mentors and going to, and I just reinvested most of the money I made into continuing education And along the way, you know, I met Craig Weller, who I co-authored the book with, who I co-owned the facility with. And we had just like extremely different backgrounds. And I think he had a lot of expertise and and experience in an area of training more on the psychological side of things and had just done a lot of different things that I had not done. And it opened up this huge avenue of, of different fields that I had not considered, but we had a really similar philosophy we hit it off. And so we ended up working together and then we opened gym together eventually. And then over the last decade through R and D working with military guys, we eventually published our book, building the elite. It's a lot, man. It's a lot. You've been busy for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) I love it though. So let's dive in. And I want to start with a simple question, but I think it's really important based on some of the things that you and I want to cover here today. How do you define resilience? And maybe as a follow-up, why is it important? Yeah. So when people think of resilience, I think they just think of somebody who's a really capable human being. And 
And that is honestly a really good way to think of it. But what makes someone really capable? The way someone becomes a resilient, capable human being is that they have the ability or an underlying set of skills that allows them to learn from difficulty. So when they go and do hard things, as they go through that process, they're able to adjust and learn on the fly and then become more capable. So at every point in their life, a resilient person doesn't necessarily overcome everything the first time. What it means is they're able to adapt based on their experiences that they have in their life. So it's this active process and a set of skills that allows somebody to become more capable over time. And so these are people who are constantly growing, who are always adapting and becoming more capable. And no matter what situation you put them in, they might not initially thrive, but they'll learn from that situation, become more capable. And so there's a couple of you know, underlying thoughts there is that the way to do this is by not just focusing on the what you're doing, but how you do things. Because these people don't do anything different than anyone else does. It's how they do things. It's how they think about it. So it's how they think about challenges, setbacks, failure, and difficulty, You know how they cope with pain and fatigue and stress. Those are the differences that make someone resilient or not resilient. It's not a static process. It's an active process of continuing to learn and becoming more capable. And so obviously that's really important if you want somebody who's going to continually improve because at every step, you know, we talked about this, you know, in my own story, like I had the skills and the capability to excel at a high school level and I got to college and I couldn't. And maybe I had the psychological skills, but I didn't have the physical skills. So I wasn't physically resilient enough to excel at that level. And so as you increase stress and ambiguity and intensity over time in people's life, you'll find out how resilient they really are. And that really what's highlights whether or not they have a weakness that can be improved over time. Mm, I like that a lot. And I like how you said that too, how they think about things. And this is something that I don't know if it's exactly in the same vein, but like we were having this discussion with my daughter the other day where, you know, she's doing all the virtual learning stuff and there's times where we don't feel like she gives her best effort, you know? So we have to talk about like, okay, it's not just turning the work in. It's like taking pride in the work and making sure that you're trying to actually learn the things that the teacher is giving you. So I just like how you you worded that. And, and I think that's not something that a lot of people do, or probably it takes them a while to figure it out, like to think differently about how you do things versus making it mundane or boring, thinking, no, this is a challenge. This is something I can get better at. Yeah, it's not the process. Or sorry, it's not the outcome, but it's the process. Yes. Because if you have the right process, the outcome will take care of itself in time. And at some point, you're going to hit some kind of obstacle where you are not going to be initially successful. And so you see this with a lot of people where they might be successful for a long time, but they never really had to invest in the process because they were just naturally good at things. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as they hit adversity and they haven't worked on those underlying skills of how to work through a challenge, then they get stumped. Whereas somebody who might initially be way less capable and they hit their challenges early and they learn how to work through them at every stage, they hit challenges, but at every stage, they're able to work through them and overcome those limiting factors. That person is on a trajectory to become far more capable in the long run. I love it, man. Okay. So one thing that you mentioned prior to the show that really piqued my interest was this idea of stress physiology. So would you mind talking to us a little bit about stress physiology and how perception changes how a client experiences a workout? Yeah. So, you know, we just talked about this concept of resilience and how you think about things 
has a massive impact on your actual stress response and the underlying physiology of what occurs in your body. And so let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So the first thing is to understand that stress, this stress response is a continuum, but to help understand the two ends of the spectrum, I'm going to kind of talk about the extremes. Okay. okay. And when you understand the extremes, you can understand that something could fall somewhere in the middle of those two things. Sure. So the first thing is, is you can have a challenge-based stress response. So a challenge-based stress response is when you perceive that you have the resources necessary to deal with the situation. And when this happens, you tend to have less cortisol, you have more norepinephrine, and all that means is that it doesn't take that long to recover from. You prepare enough resources, like you're able to mobilize the energy you need to do to overcome the challenge, whether it's a psychological challenge, whether it's a physical challenge, like lifting a weight or doing a workout. But in other words, you kind of optimize your stress response where you're, again, you can perform, but you recover really quickly from that stress response. And and then the second one is a fear-based stress response. And so this happens when you perceive that a situation is threatening and because you're not sure if you're going to be able to deal with it effectively. And when this happens, you have this massive cortisol response, you more have an epinephrine response in your brain. And what this does is it shuts down the thinky or the executive part of your brain. So this means you just perform. And so this is what happens when you get really, really stressed out and you cannot think. You literally can't make a good decision. You just react. And so this is performing. And so sometimes this can be helpful. If I'm in a game and it's a high stress situation, I might be closer to that end of the spectrum. I don't want to lose all ability to think, but I'm more just reacting to this to the situation and thinking and, and sorry, just performing. But the downside of this, if I think of training, is that it takes a long time to recover from that because I have this massive general stress response. And so the difference here when we're thinking of training is this general versus specific stress response. So whenever I do any kind of training adaptation, I have two kind of different types of stressors, right? That general stress response. And then I have the specific stress based on the type of activity I'm doing. If I'm doing aerobic exercise, I have a specific type of stress response that leads to aerobic adaptations. If I do strength work, I have a specific stress response that helps me become more strong in time. And so if I have this fear-based stress response, then I'm going to have a massive general stress response that takes a long time to recover from and just whatever the specific stress response is. I could do that exact same workout having much more of a challenge-based stress response, and I'll have way less general stress and way more specific stress. And that means that I recover a lot faster. I adapt more quickly to the actual work that I'm doing during that movement or that workout. I can actually think. That means I can change strategies. I can learn. I can become better. I can adjust my approach. So how I'm doing the thing can improve. And therefore, the outcome itself, the quality of the workout can be way better. So thinking my technique could be better. I could lift heavier weights because I'm focusing on cues that allow the execution, the movement to be more efficient. And so it creates this cascade of effects over time. And so the stress response is controlled primarily by two things, your predictability of the situation and your sense of control. And both of these things are driven by your perception. And I think an easier word for that is opinion. It's your opinion of the predictability of the situation and your sense of control. So even in a situation, and this is what we to, to kind of push to give an example of someone on you know the extreme end of the spectrum for a special operations guy, part of the, the thing that makes selection programs so difficult is that they're extremely ambiguous and completely devoid of positive feedback. So you never know what's going to happen. You never know how long it's going to last for. 
You have no control over what is happening to you. You cannot, the only thing you can do is quit and that's it. Otherwise you just have to do what they're telling you to do as well as you possibly can. And so that's like one extreme end of the the spectrum. Most people are never going to find themselves in that situation. But even in those situations, what we teach people to do is that they have control over their own internal dialogue, their own internal response, how they're thinking about the situation and how they're reacting to it. And when you do that, and when you teach someone, again, this is a skill, it reduces their stress response. So they stay in that kind of challenge-based stress response. So they don't, it takes a lot longer for stress to amplify and build up over time. They can adjust on the fly if what they're doing isn't working. And over time, they just become much, much more capable. And in, and when you think of a selection process, it's not that any one event or any one day is that particularly hard. It's that it doesn't end. It just it's like one thing after another, and it just it snowballs over and over again. But even if you think of an athlete in terms of their ability to, or a gin pop person, their lives are stressful. Like if I am working my job and I've got kids and a family, and I'm trying to get to the gym, and then the gym is just another thing that really stresses me out that person's just surviving. And while they might become a little bit more fit in the long run, you're not doing them any favors. And if you help you know, people stay in that more ideal stress response, not only will they get better results because you're giving them more specific stress, less general, which means they're able to recover much faster. You're teaching them underlying skills that will help them also apply those concepts in the rest of their life. And then they can become more resilient, more capable people over time. So it doesn't matter who you're working with. I think it's helpful to understand the extreme, to understand why it might apply to somebody else. But again, we use these principles no matter who I'm working with, and we bake it into all of our programming. That's really interesting. So I want to kind of jump off that for a minute, because would you say there's benefit then to having some predictability in workouts as far as improving learning, improving or lowering that threat response, as you mentioned, because I mean, I'm just imagining, and again, I'm not bagging on CrossFit, but I'm just imagining going into a workout and having no clue what I'm going to do or how I'm going to get through it. Right. And I'm imagining my mindset there versus, okay, I know it's squat day. I've got three sets of 10. Like, could you talk to me about maybe how somebody would interpret those two situations differently? Cause I'd imagine if I know what I'm going to do, I can kind of plan a routine like you said, I've got the resources available, yeah. so I could probably be more successful there. Yeah. And so the you kind of hit the nail on the head. The idea isn't to avoid difficulty. And, and what we really do with military guys is we actually add more and more ambiguity over time to where they eventually go into what we call open-end workouts, where they don't know what's happening. They show up and they do what's in front of them and say, we'll say, okay, you're going to go do a two-mile run at this pace. And then they do the thing and they come back and then they do the next thing and the next thing, next thing. And they don't know when the workout's going to end or what's next or anything like that. But to your point with the gin pop person, even the military guys, we build them up to that. So when we start, we initially tell them like, look, this is what you're going to do. This is exactly how many reps you're going to do. This is what it's going to feel like. This is how I want you to think about it and then go. And then we ask them questions along the way because really asking questions is the only way you're going to elicit, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a little bit, but you can actually learn from your clients and what their internal experience is. And oftentimes as coaches, we really think more about the do this thing and we're, we're directing people as opposed to asking questions and being inquisitive and understanding what's going on with people. So again, it's opinion. So the three sets of 10 for one person might actually feel really overwhelming. That might feel really difficult for them because they don't know what weight to choose. And, and they're concerned about, you know, is this going to put pressure on my back? And well, I don't really feel comfortable with this movement. And so again, it comes down to you having that relationship with your client 
asking them questions. And again, you have to be open-ended questions and be curious. If you're judgmental about these things and people will start to hold back information, and then you're not, it, it really reduces your capabilities as a coach to be, to be helpful. So to kind of get back to your point there, yes, with predictability and control, I give them things to focus on. So I shift their attention to specific things that they can control, that they feel good about. And then you reinforce that. So they're right on the edge of their ability. When they're successful, you can slowly add more and more stress, whether that's intensity, the amount of weight you're using, reducing rest, the amount of ambiguity you have, like they don't know what's next or how many sets are going to be. So with our gym pop people in our gym, for conditioning workouts, we we a lot of times have a set amount of ambiguity where they know like the workout's only going to be an hour long or you're like, like, I'm not going to hold them there for three hours. But at the same time, I don't tell them how many sets. Instead, I shift their, so say we're doing a circuit or we're doing intervals or something like that. I won't tell them how many intervals. Instead, I shift their attention to what I know they can focus on and can control. And again, I watch people's body language and ask questions. If it's not going well, then I'll give them, you know, some Easter eggs so they know how long it's going to last. So I kind of keep them in that ideal spot to where they are being successful. And then they can, that increases their tolerance for ambiguity in the future. I gotcha. I gotcha. And I feel like maybe I'm going to be redundant here in this question, but obviously something that we all struggle with nowadays, or maybe not all of us, but a lot of us struggle with is attention, right? Whether it's the constant notifications or just the busyness of everyday life. So talk to me a little bit about attention, how you can use attention throughout the workout so that ultimately, you know, like I think you're in the same boat as us. You want your clients to move better, right? You want them to be more resilient. So what are maybe some other tools that we can use to help get more out of every coaching session and really help our clients dial in and focus on what they're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of different domains I want to, of different types of attention I want to talk about first. So as you said, we're all pulled in different directions. And if anybody who's listening to this has ever done meditation, you probably understand how even when you try to focus on one thing, your brain just naturally like goes in a million different directions. And it it's actually very, very difficult to even focus on something as simple as your breath or the color of the wall in front of you for more than like three seconds before some new thought comes into your brain. But that being said, just the simple skill of understanding where your attention is being pulled is extremely important. Even having the ability to understand or to to notice that I'm focusing on something else is a very, very, very important. And so the way we do this is we break down attention to a couple different domains. So the first thing is self-awareness. So this is just basically knowing your tendencies and your biases. This is looking backwards. So this is understanding you know, what do I tend to do in these different situations? Like, how do I emotionally react? What are the things I tell myself? And the best way to learn this is by past behavior, because our memories are terribly inaccurate. Even if we're trying to accurately remember, you know, what we told ourselves or how we thought about a situation, it's probably wrong. It's probably not even close to accurate. So instead, if you look at behavior, it's far more reflective of your actual internal process. So for example, you know, if I look at a workout and I'm like, oh, I was thinking about you know, how to do the movement. And then if you look at like your outcome, you're like, oh, but my, you ask your coach, like, well, how did that workout go? Your coach is like, oh, well, you were all over the place and I couldn't get you to focus and this and this and this. <laughs> like that's, that's helpful because your internal experience and what actually happened are often two very different things. And so again, 
having the ability to just kind of look at behavior is more important. The next thing is metacognition and meta emotion. That's just thinking about thinking or thinking about emotions. That's what we're doing here. If somebody's listening to this, that's what they're doing. So just by understanding there might be a different way to think about something, you're engaging in that process. And that's really helpful. And then the third thing is mindfulness. And that is what you are focusing on or trying to work on when you're meditating, or if I'm trying to get you to just focus on what's presently happening moment by moment, your stream of consciousness. And so those three things kind of make this feedback loop. And so if you understand your tendencies and then you can introduce new ideas and new concepts and new ways of thinking about things, and then in real time, you use mindfulness to, you know, think about and just, or sorry, basically scan what's going on in your experience, then you can adjust what happens and your brain's always learning. So the better this feedback you become, the better you become at learning because you understand yourself better. You introduce new ideas. You see how it goes in the moment. You make adjustments and it continues on over and over and over again. And so this is what we try to get clients to do is we highlight, you know, what their tendencies might tend to be. We ask them open-ended questions like, why did you do that? What were you thinking? What did you tell yourself about that exercise or before you did that set? Especially when you see body language that you don't feel like is helpful or in line with what you might be wanting to get out of the session. Or even if the person's crushing it, but it looks like they're not even present, right? And that's how a lot of people go through exercise is they call it dissociate, but their head is somewhere else, man. They're, they're just not even thinking. And that's where they're performing. So when we get back to the stress response, when I stay present, if I can just focus on what I am doing moment after moment, I can control my stress response. By default, I'm increasing my sense of predictability and control. As soon as I start to dissociate and just perform, I'm letting the stress response take over and then stress starts to amplify. And so then I'm no longer learning. I'm just performing. I'm just doing the thing. And I can't, you can't, as a coach, you might be spitting out cues and telling them things and they're not even hearing them. They're just, they're just going right. And so again, simply by asking questions and getting people to attune to what is happening with their internal experiences, you know, how they think about something like, Oh, they just did a set. You didn't think it did what went well, or they, their body language is really bad. You're like, Oh, you know, what are you thinking about? You know, like what, are you unhappy with how that set went? And they'll tell you, and then that that they learn by telling you about it. And then you can get them like, okay, well, this next set, I want you to just pay attention to like what you're telling yourself as you go through that thing. Like, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about doing the movement? Are you thinking about how bad this sucks? How much pain you're in? Like, tell me about that. And that is very, very helpful. And so that's how we use attention to help guide people and to help them manage their stress response. I love it, man. I love it. So something that I think kind of falls into the same line and something I know I'm personally interested in is this idea of stories and beliefs, because this is something, whether we know it or not, we've got a belief system, we've got stories that we tell ourselves. So my question to you, it's really two parts. How does this manifest in regards to exercise or performance Or maybe more specifically, what role do beliefs, expectations, and stories play in our training or performance? Yeah, so stories are really just the, you know, the final kind of grouping of what happens with your attention. So I do a workout and at the end of that workout, you know, I, I, you kind of like automatically analyze what your experience was. And then you end up usually telling yourself a story about how things went. Oh, that was a great workout. It was a terrible workout. And along with why that was a terrible workout, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that happened. Like, oh, 
you know, like I, I just didn't feel good today, or I really don't like doing X or whatever it is. And then those things become expectations in the future. So if I tell myself that I really hate conditioning workouts and that was a terrible workout, well, then the next time I start to do a conditioning workout, I'm going to start paying attention to all the bad things that are happening because I already have an expectation. And there's a phenomenon called self-hurting where you have the tendency to repeat thoughts and actions in similar circumstances, regardless of whether or not it's an effective strategy. Okay. And so that's what I'm talking about when you, you create these stories and by using attention, you can start to, you know, unwind these things and even just become conscious of them. Because oftentimes what happens, like we talked about, you just go to default mode and you're performing and you're no longer paying attention. If you're no longer paying attention, you're probably not learning anything new, which means you're just hostage to whatever your previous beliefs are. And now this is what's really powerful when it's time to perform. So the people who perform well at the highest level have intentionally built these really powerful stories so that when they go on autopilot and it is time to perform, they are ready. The people who do not perform well have the same underlying, you know, perceptions and expectations, but they're not obviously not serving that person well. So when it's time to perform, it goes badly. I mean, obviously nothing's a hundred percent, but in general, what we try to do with these stories is just get people to understand what they are and then start asking questions. So it usually falls into like one of two categories. You can normalize or catastrophize. So when you normalize an experience, then you don't make it a big deal. So if you have a really hard workout, whether it goes well or it doesn't go well, and you're, you're sitting there thinking about it, that becomes a non-threatening thing. Like you're just objectively, like you're taking a step back and saying, oh, what's well, it didn't go well. You know, I was, I was a little bit tired. So I had a hard time focusing on my technique, you know, and there, I wasn't able to push the weight as much and I just didn't have a great workout. But when that happens and you're able to just normalize that, like, oh, well, that's part of the process, then it doesn't become, oh, I'm worthless. I'm not any good. And then you start associating strength workouts or being tired with not having good workouts and the expectation that's not going to go well. And then when you go to your next workout, you're feeling a little bit tired. You're like, oh, well, I'm tired. So I'm not going to work out well. It's not going to go well today. And then you start paying attention to all those little pieces of information that are telling you because you have like a million, you can, you know, pieces of sensory information coming into your brain, both top down and bottom up. So information coming up from, it's from the outside, like external information and top down, it's like your beliefs, your emotions, your expectations, and those things combine. And simply by shifting your attention, you completely can change your experience. You can go from feeling terrible and miserable and being in a bad mood to immediately becoming, you know, feeling pretty good about things and, and something not hurting. And again, the better your clients become at noticing the stories they're telling themselves, how they're using their attention, they can interrupt those feedback loops a lot faster. When they build new ones, that's now the kind of default program. So if even if I'm having a bad day and I'm really tired and I go into a workout and I know that, you can, as a coach, you can like, hey, it looks like you're a little bit tired today. And you know, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just feeling a little bit off and this and that. Okay, when we go through this workout, I want you to focus on you know, just focus on your technique, focus on these cues and this and that, instead of how tired you are. If you feel a little bit tired, instead of that, focus on your breathing, focus on what you can do to make this feel easier as you go through your workout. And so you can stay away from the cycle of a lot of people who are always trying to make things as hard as possible and catastrophizing, which is the other side of it, where you're making things threatening and you increase your stress response and you can normalize things and move more towards that challenge-based stress response. I love it. I love it. And you just answered my follow-up question. So I don't even get to answer that. <laughs> or I don't even get to ask that. But but like one thing 
when it comes to shows like this, right? Like they could listen to us talk and go back and forth and think, wow, that was really cool. Like I learned a lot, but then not necessarily feel like they can walk out and apply a lot of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, what are some practical like mental skills that the coaches, trainers, rehab professionals that listen to this show can use to help the people they work with feel more successful and elevate their performance? Yeah. So I think the first thing, it starts with the relationship and listening well. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have to be able to ask questions in a curious manner and respond effectively to those things. So when you ask questions to people and you don't respond in a judgmental way, instead as like imagine what their friend, how they would respond, you know, and you're curious about it and you're just gathering information and learning, that person doesn't feel threatened. They feel as though you really care and that you're there to learn about them and help them become whatever their goals are get out of pain, be more fit, lose some weight, whatever it is. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing, because if you don't have that, it doesn't matter what you do as a coach. Like it's just not going to get, they're not, they're going to shut off and they're not going to really, they don't, they might go through the motions, but they're probably not really going to fully engage with the process, but some specific mental skills you can use. So if we think of during a workout and shifting attention, segmenting is one of the easiest ones. So segmenting is breaking down a big workout into a really bite-sized chunk. Okay. So a lot of times people will feel overwhelmed, like especially if they're tired or stressed out at the end of a long day. And then they come to workout training session and they got 60 minutes in front of them, or they're coming to a PT session. They got to do all these movements and they have to think about all of the things they're doing and they might be in pain and it might be uncomfortable. And they're just sitting there ruminating and thinking about all the stuff that they have to do. Instead, if you break that down into something they know that they can focus on, like a bite-sized chunk, like, hey, I want you to just focus on doing this set. Just get through this set. And then you move their attention to the next thing. Okay, now we're going to do this exercise. All you need to do is you know, focus on this set. And you might give them some external cues, like when they're doing the movement and shifting their attention to the execution of the thing. But you're, what you're doing by doing that is you're giving them a sense of predictability and control. They know what's about to happen and they have control over it. And you're breaking down this big task into something that they can handle. And so that kind of moves me on to the next one, which would be compartmentalization. And so this is just accepting, you know, setbacks or even positive things and just being able to focus on the present. So the best way to do that again is to say like, say they had a bad set or a bad rep, whatever, you can just get them to shift their emphasis to what is in front of them. If they had a bad day, you know, you don't dismiss it. Listen, oh, that sucks. That sounds like a really tough day. You know, you know, what would be like, I want you to leave here in a great attitude. So to help me do that, let's focus on just this thing right here. And again, they can compartmentalize that part of the day and you shift their attention to the moment to moment experience that they're having right there. And by doing so, you can pull them out of a bad mood or to focusing on how the last set went and didn't go well, or they didn't feel the movement in the right way or whatever it might be. And you get them to focus on the present instead of past or the future. And then the third thing is self-talk. So self-talk, and we've kind of been talking about this the entire time. So that's the story or the narrative that they're telling themselves as they go. And so a good way to help people kind of interrupt those feedback loops with their self-talk is the first thing is they have to be aware of it. Most people are not aware of the, their self-talk in the moment. So just asking them, hey, in this next set, you know, I want you to just pay attention to what you're telling yourself when it starts getting hard. Like, what are you focusing on? What are you thinking about? You know, what are, and then 
they'll tell you. And then that can be a really awesome opportunity to start diving into what their beliefs are, how that ties into bigger stories they might tell about themselves in their life. And then you can reconstruct those. And then a good way to get them to do that is ask them, Hey, is that helping you? You Does that help you get more out of what you're doing right now? And again, you have to ask these in like a really inquisitive way because it can come off like kind of a, a not nice question. So you know, that's where it comes down to having that relationship with your client and being really skilled at communicating with them. But if you've built that trust, like I ask these questions all the time to guys who, you know, are these alpha type A, like, I want to go be a special. If you're trying to go do special operations, you're not a, a normal person. Like you're very driven, you know, like what most people would think of as like a machismo kind of alpha type guy. And we get them to start talking about their feelings and how they're thinking about things. And the only way we can do that is by building trust in the relationship and by leading, by showing like, hey, this is what my experience is when I do this thing. And so if you get someone who's resistant to that, sometimes sharing you know, your own experience can be really, really helpful in breaking down those barriers if people aren't open to talking about it. Yeah, I love that concept of vulnerability, first of all. Like you said, you've got to have a certain amount of trust built up and the relationship has to be there for it to be accepted. But the other thing, and this is like at the very beginning of the question, but that idea or that concept of questions without judgment, absolutely love that. And I think you hit the nail on the head. When you ask a question, it needs to come from a place of curiosity versus like an accusatory manner, right? So if somebody says, oh, well, I don't like squats, you, you ask in a curious manner, well, why is that? You know, then you're probably going to get a lot different answer than if you say it like, well, why is that? You know, the exact same phrase, exact same words, but it's how you deliver it. And, and it's honestly, like you said, it's where you're coming from with the line of questioning. So that idea of coming at it from a curious manner where you're trying to understand them better, I think people just are a lot more accepting of that. They're a lot more willing to kind of lower their guard and tell you the real answer. Versus if you're coming at it from like an accusatory type position, you're probably not going to get very far with it. Yeah. And you definitely also need to know like your audience, like some people, like I'm not going to ask them those kind of questions in front of a group. You yes. know, they're, they yeah. might not be comfortable, especially, especially younger athletes. Like you think of high school guys, like they're, they're not going to want to tell you that. Like right. they're not going to tell that in front of their friends. There's no way. So you have to be able to understand your audience and have that conversation in a in the context that's going to allow them to be honest. And it's also just setting the tone from the get-go of like, look, it's okay if you're not having a good day. It's okay to tell me that things aren't going well. This isn't, you know, a positive only place. Like you have to be honest about how things are going or how you feel about something in order for us to move things in a different direction. I love it. Okay, my guy, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young John Pope one piece of advice about training in or life, what would it be? Yeah, I think it would just be that the the struggles that you're going to face will make you who you are in the future. So don't avoid them. Just lean in and work through them. Fantastic. Fantastic. Short and sweet. Okay. Last but not least, lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. All right. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? Oh, I, I think it's just getting messages from clients, you know, who, who there's across the spectrum. Like sometimes if we get a guy who passes selection and I've been working with them for, you know, a year plus, and it's the culmination of a lifelong dream. Those are great moments, but it's also like PN clients who are just normal people who like have struggled with their mindset and their approach 
with doing fundamentals and they have a lot of other challenges in their life, you know, with maybe family career stuff. And they, they have these light bulb moments where they're like, wow, like I just changed the way I thought about things. And, and I just find them really insightful because and, and enjoyable because they're the person who comes to that conclusion. It's not about me telling them something. It's that they are able to reflect and see how far they've come and see that it was about the work that they, they did. And, you know, and my job as a coach is just to help guide people on that. I love it. Okay. Number two, what prompted you and Craig to write the building the elite book? Yeah. So there's, there's not a ton of great information out there for, you know, the military guys. I think if you want to go into a lot of fields, like if you want to be a, a great basketball player, you know, you can, there's a ton of really good resources to be found on how to go down that path. And unfortunately on the military side of things, there's a lot of people, you know, giving advice, like just don't quit, be tougher, run really hard, do hard things, you know, but that's not, if you don't have some of the underlying qualities of what it takes to be a resilient person already, like most of those things are just exploit based. So in other words, they're helpful if you already have these set of qualities, but they're not helpful if you don't. And so we wrote the book, to help all the people who went through the same process that Craig and I went through. Like we obviously went through very different things, but the book really applies to anybody. And it's like just understanding the process of becoming a more resilient human and the complexity and all the different variables that go into being like a capable human being so that people can have, it's not to avoid the work or difficulty or the process. Like that's what is honestly the value of doing difficult things. Like you should want to go through the process but people who are seeking out our book aren't avoiding hard things. This just helps them go through that process a little bit more efficiently so that they can eventually reach higher levels than we ever did ourselves. That's awesome. I love that. Okay. Number three, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned from training BJJ? Uh, I mean, it's similar. Like you have to invest in the process. Like uh, at any point, like if you start to rely upon what you're already good at, you know, like I see a lot of jiu-jitsu guys who might be super flexible, you know, have crazy range of motion or people who have really good technique, but aren't very physically capable. And then you have other guys who are like physical monsters, but at any point, if you settle and stop investing in short-term loss for long-term gain, then you get stuck and you just stop progressing very, very quickly. And so you really, really have to be ruthless with yourself about not focusing on the things you're already good at. And so for me, like I can physically go into one of these gyms and push almost anybody in there, even some of the younger, really high level guys, I can push them physically to the edge. But if I rely upon that, I don't actually get any better. Like right. it might feel good to my ego It'd be like, Oh, you know, this world-class guy. And I pushed him to the edge, you know, but I didn't really get any better in that session. Or I could go get beat up trying a bunch of different things, but I actually become much, much better. And so I think that's what I've, you know, it's like something, you know, and you might apply in other parts of your life, but it's like a daily reminder of your just like humble pie every single day. And as soon as you start to think you're good, you realize you're not very good at all. <laughs> I like that, man. Okay. Number four, last but not least, what's next for John Pope? Well, I think our book um, in, you know, the, the business around building the elite is really just getting started. We're working on a mental skills course. So a lot of the stuff we talked about today to put that into a course, it's very easily digestible and is most importantly, action-oriented. And our book talks a lot about the underlying physiology and the psychology and the process. And you can definitely go and apply that process, but you know, you're kind of on your own to follow the structure of the book. And we know that a lot of people enjoy following more of a structure plan 
that focuses on doing. And so we're going to create a course that does give them that underlying knowledge, but also focuses on going out and doing. The only way you truly learn something, the only way you ever really know anything is if you've done it. You might conceptually understand it until you've lived it. It's not the same. So we're really focusing on that. And then we're uh, working on an app to deliver our training in a way that's, which is going to be a long-term project because unfortunately out there, there's, we we try to, you know, most of the military guys are young guys. They don't have a lot of money and we can't really scale individualized coaching at a rate that's affordable for those people. So we're trying to figure out where we're we not figuring out. We are developing an app that would do, you know, 75, 80% of what I would do as a coach in terms of individualization, but do it automatically. So it's financially feasible for a lot of people. Nice. You got your work cut out for you, man. You got some things going on here. Thanks, Mike. I love it, man. Well, John, you've been great to catch up with today. Appreciate your time. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Yeah, so you can follow us on Instagram. We put out a lot of content on there. You can learn a lot more about the topics we talked about today. We don't just put up kind of fluff posts. There's actually, you should be able to get a lot of value out of a lot of the posts that we provide there. And you can follow us there at Building the Elite or our website, buildingtheelite.com. We post content up pretty regularly there in our blog. You can sign up for a newsletter there to get notifications when we post up new content as well as the projects that we're working on. I love it, man. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on the show, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with John. Really hope you enjoyed it. I know it's not necessarily like the X's and O's of program design or coaching cues, but I think this mental side of training, the stories that we tell ourselves, how we perceive workouts, all these things are of critical importance. And I think the better that we as trainers and coaches understand this stuff and how to apply it, the better results we can get with virtually any client or athlete that we come in contact with. So my friend, if you enjoyed this show, I have one small ask for you. Please share this episode with somebody else that you think would benefit from it. It could be a fellow trainer, a fellow coach, a rehab professional, or maybe just an athlete that needs to hear some of this information and how powerful the mental side of training can be. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.